Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Westworld. I'm Annie Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you were just joining us for Still Watching, what Richard and I do every week on this podcast is we pick a television show that we are watching closely, watching obsessively sometimes, uh, and break it down. We do not spoil future episodes of a TV show, even if we have already seen it. So this week we will be discussing season three, episode three, the absence of fields. We will not be discussing anything in the future. Just this episode. This is a Tessa Thompson extravaganza. Um, and that, that is what we are here to chat about. Um, if you want to send us an email, we love your emails. Uh, you can send them to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I want to start with this email from, uh, from Marta. Because she brings, presumably before she even watched this episode, she brought up something that I noticed in this episode, which is this. Uh, greetings from Portugal. Um, do you think we can read any symbolism from the colors, black versus white, of the dressers, the dresses that Dolores and Maeve very prominently use in the real world? It reminded me of the black and white hat from season one. Um, is it resetting a good versus evil rhetoric, or am I just reading too much and they're just really cute dresses? Um, so I didn't uh, read too much into Dolores versus Maeve, but in this episode, there is some extremely striking shots of Evan Rachel Wood in her blonde head in all black and Tessa Thompson in her dark hair in all white. Uh, so that did seem to me to be a very like um, <clears throat> intentional contrast. Um, at its best, Richard, what do you think? something like that um, could mean for the show and for the audience. Well, I think it's just, I think honestly, I think the simple answer is that it's just like, it, it, it's good visual differentiation, you know, like, uh-huh. like the show deals in a lot of like kind of, a, kind of a stark palette, you know? Um, and in this kind of future world, everything is very sleek and minimal. And um, so I, I think, you know, if we're going to be working in those terms, we're not going to see a lot of bold patterns, you know, and probably um, not too many bright, bright, you know, jewel tones or anything. Um, right. And it makes sense for Dolores to be in black. She's skulking through the, the world, you know, um, trying to do her, you know, sort of subversive things. Um, whereas the people in white are maybe more like, I mean, at least certainly in terms of Charlotte or sort of Charlotte, 
um, more public facing, more front facing, um, you know, can, can, can shine a bit more. Um, I think it makes sense. I, I, but again, I, you know, I think we mentioned this last week, uh, when we were talking all about Maeve, um, as opposed to Dolores, like I like that, um, Dolores is kind of set up as this one monolithic ideology, um, that I think we see shift, not shift a little bit, but, but expanded upon a bit in this episode. Um, but her, her sort of would be opposition, be it Bernard or Maeve or potentially Charlotte at some point, um, their, their motivations are more complicated and, um, it's not really clear what their kind of end want is. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we could, we should really look at this as like a binary. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows? Cause the show has told us the same thing through these same visual cues before. So. Yeah. This idea of Dolores sort of taking on the man in black role in this episode, um, or in this season, I'm, I think that's more applicable to season two. Cause season two, she's like this force of destruction, sort of tearing her way through the park. Um, in this season, I think it's supposed to be a bit more nuanced. So yeah, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, exactly like good versus evil or anything like that. Um, that being said, well, the other, the other, the other thing, and I think we pointed this out is most of the people in this futuristic real world do dress, as you say, in like blacks and whites and grays and, in that way, Caleb stands out because I think at one point he's wearing like a brown suit and I think we see him in some like blues as well. So like he's standing out a little bit in from this like monochromatic, uh, future world. Um, so I think that's, that's sort of, it seems like more what they're going for. That being said, they're definitely trying to do a lot of softening of, um, the Charlotte esque character in this episode <laughs> um uh mm-hmm. you know for better or for worse so that that like you know angelic white or i think she's even wearing like baby pink um uh, in some scenes uh might be like a a very um aggressive way to feminize someone possibly not a way that i necessarily agree with but um something that they might do okay um so this email comes from Susie. uh and Susie writes in, it's interesting that Caleb was shot in the head and in the portion of the brain that programs humans to believe in God. Um, I'm not sure that the show has said exactly where Caleb was shot in the head. So I, I don't know if Susie's making a slight extrapolation there. But um, if Caleb is missing that part of his brain, is he suddenly released from a portion of his humanity? Is Caleb going to be able to relate to Dolores slash hosts differently than other humans relate to them? If people have that part of the brain, are they going to somehow transfer their belief in God to a belief in robot gods? Is Rehoboam a God that must be replaced? If Caleb is not able to believe in God slash gods, then is he the perfect human to work with Dolores to overthrow the system? Does Caleb's brain have something hostish in it? Um, is Westworld going to go further th- into the idea that humans were created purposefully and with a purpose like hosts? The show spent so much time on the Caleb's brain idea that I think it has to be important in some way to the plot this season. Uh, Susie. So I'm, I'm like, I'm actually not sure I agree with Susie that the show spent that much time on his brain. He just says it sort of like someone beat you to it. But in this episode, in episode three, we do see that unlike most of the humans around him, Caleb has not only doesn't take these like, um, implant you know drug things but he has everyone it seems is fitted with this like retainer like thing on the roof of their mouth um that controls their nervous system uh and caleb has his turned off intentionally um so what do you what do you make of that richard 
Well, yeah, I think we're, we're, you know, we're just getting, getting to know Caleb and what, you know, his particular wounds are. Um, but he definitely seems to be someone who has been not almost like, I mean, I think he was, he's chosen to opt out of the system in terms of not having his implant on and, and various other things and like committing these crimes kind of, you know, subversively, um, uh, but at the same time, I think that there was an inciting event that knocked him out of the system, right? Right. That, 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 that completely challenged his faith in the organization of things, you know? And here we have in this episode, all this talk about like, you know, can you make your own fate? You know, blah, blah, blah is, I'm never going to say it right. Rehoboth, Rehoboah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Rehoboam, yeah. Rehoboam, does, does that represent, you know, God's divine plan, which has always been right. one of the most vexing questions of, I, I, I would say Christian faith, Judeo Christian faith, you know, maybe, um, it, it, um, Islam uh, too. I, um, I don't know enough about any of these religions to tell you, but, but, um, it, one of the most vexing things has been, well, okay, so if God knows everything that's happening, then, what's the point of anything and why doesn't it, why, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of like circular logic loop. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe that's what this show is about. I mean, in the same way that another Lindelof creation, um, well, I guess this is not his creation, is it? No, Lindelof didn't, isn't involved in this, is he? No. Oh, okay. Well, so like, sorry, you and I were talking about Lost before we started recording. Sorry. In my head. But in a way that another yeah. kind of slick, cool sci-fi show like Lost eventually was kind of about God and heaven and purgatory yes. and stuff like that. Right. Like, I wouldn't put it past Nolan and Joy to be like, these are easy tropes to work with, you know, in a way, because they are, they, they, they contain a vastness of, of, of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that what we're seeing, especially in this episode, is setting Caleb up as the imagined us in this world right right and he's he's more human than the other humans around him because he has this thing turned off um i was discussing on on the other westworld podcast that i do decoding westworld we were discussing the film gattaca and this idea of ethan hawk's character in gattaca uh similarly is sort of like more humans than the other humans around him because he's not, uh, you know, genetically perf- perfect. And this mm-hmm. makes him an outsider and, and part of a lower caste, uh, in this society, but it also makes him, uh, easier for us to relate to as viewers. And so that's sort of like the Caleb role here is he's like, you know, um, Aaron Paul referred to his character as an everyman and it's sort of like, he he can be our entree into the world more so than someone else who's completely dialed into all this technology, who is completely like sort of given himself over. And this idea of like needing to find a god, like you're right, you know, like Lost becomes about religion. All Lindelof shows become about religion and, and faith in some regard. And so this um, this idea that like we humans need something to believe in uh this you know this is sort of the idea that dolores was talking about in episode one which is like uh you guys didn't have a god so you created your own in like rehoboam you created your own master basically that we need a master to follow it's it's human nature to want to like have you know a god slash parent to follow and so like caleb adrift looking for something refuse like denying the the big brother technological authority uh but 
but latching to Dolores. You know what I mean? Like putting Dolores in that position. Mm-hmm. Because as much as he thinks he's like there to overthrow the system, he's just really giving himself over to a different kind of authority, if that makes sense. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Um... All right, so we're going to talk about this episode a little bit, and then we, you know, we we want to talk about the. I, I I'm I'm going to make Richard talk to me about about twists uh, in film and television. So maybe as we're talking, you, the listener, might be thinking about your favorite twists and what works for you and what doesn't, because we're going to talk about that. Because this whole episode, you know, a big question mark hanging over this season is. Who are the robotic lieutenants that Dolores, what are the, what are the identity of the robotic lieutenants that Dolores has sent out into the real world to do her bidding? We've got one masquerading as like a, you know, security guy at, um, Insight, played by Tommy Flanagan. Um, and then we've got this one with, uh, Tessa Thompson's face, uh, you know, looking, impersonating Charlotte Hale. And then we've got, um, Bernard. Uh, who is his own uh, thing. And so we've got two other mystery uh, hosts out there in, in the world, if we're doing our math correctly. And the episode has us follow the host posing as Charlotte Hale all the way through the episode without ever telling us who that host is. And to me, that is a frustrating experience because one of the big things that happened in season two is that for half of the season, as it turned out, we were watching Tessa Thompson do an Evan Rachel Wood impression. And we didn't get to appreciate it as it was happening because it was part of the big mystery of the season. The big twist of the season was like, whoa, you thought you were watching Charlotte, but you were watching Dolores, bro. So like, but in doing that, it means we could not, properly track the emotions of uh, this person as they're giving it to us. So like this Charlotte Hale host is going through something, but we don't have the full context of what she's going through because we don't know where she's starting from, if that makes sense. So um, Richard, I guess broadly, like how does this, how does this Charlotte centric episode work for you? I mean, it's nice to see, Tessa Thompson kind of put, you know, really front and center in an episode, um, considering, you know, a season and change ago, people were wondering why she was on the show to begin with and, you know, she wasn't getting enough to do. So like here we have like, you know, um, her star profile has risen considerably since she first signed on to the show. And so they mm-hmm. want to, you know, obviously like they have her on contract, they want to put her to good use. Um, but I, but, but again, like you said, like that use is muddled because yet again, we have, you know, we have a scene where she, strangles the would-be you know molester of her of charlotte's child um and she says i'm beginning to like feel more like myself or something like that and it's like but who is that you know and like i guess we will might we i'm assuming we're going to find out in subsequent episodes but um yeah it, it it's the kind of thing where like i think sometimes shows that trade in a a kind of uh 
an opaqueness and a sort of really just head scratchy what is going on, much like we you know I mentioned earlier, like Lost did, like the Leftovers did. But not every show can once they figure out that the audience likes that, it's hard to create new instances of that sort of like really confusing but also satisfying storytelling. Yeah. And I think that this show had it in season one and two, and now they're trying to simplify things while also giving the mystery addicts something for themselves. And it's just like, but this all just feels kind of arbitrary versus intentional and, and like integral to the story. Um, and, and, and yet yeah, it's not, it's not good for a performer. It's, it's, and it's alienating to an audience um, that has just kind of been through this a season ago. So one thing that you and I were talking about off air uh, before um, we started recording was this idea of like what the journey this um, Charlotte Hale host is on this episode. And what it seems to be is that, okay, so the episode's called The Absence of Fields. And The Absence of Field comes from this Mark Strand poem, Keeping Things Whole, uh, which I'm just going to read really quickly because it is short. Um, <clears throat> In a field, I am the absence of field. This is always the case. Wherever I am, I am what is missing. When I walk, I part the air and always the air moves in to fill the spaces where my body's been. We all have reasons for moving. I move to keep things whole. So <clears throat> this idea that, and I think, it, you know, it applies directly to, to the Charlotte figure, but can actually be applied to a number of other things here. Um, if, if this host posing at Charlotte as Charlotte Hale is here in the world, she's only there because the real Charlotte Hale is missing. And so like she or he or it or whatever, we'll just say she for expediency sake, she is the absence of Charlotte just as much as she is Charlotte. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. um, her son is missing her. Um, this hot guy, Jake played by Michael Ely, presumably is somewhat missing her or maybe not uh, since they have an estranged relationship. Um, you know, maybe her coworkers are missing, like she's missing from the world. And, um, and the journey that we see the Charlotte figure on is the role she has to play as this boy's mother is softening her or humanizing her or doing something to her um that is that is distracting or contradicting or actually maybe even activating um some of her like host like purpose uh what you and i were talking about off air was this idea of like uh, why is it got to be motherhood um, and actually like the first person to bring this up to me was, uh, our, our, uh, our friend and fellow podcaster, Katie Rich, who is a mother of two young boys. And she was just like, I don't like this for Charlotte. I don't like this sudden softening of a character who was this sort of like ball busting bad bitch, uh, in previous seasons. And, uh, you know, we see on this video, uh, transmission from the park that like, she was just a mom trying to build a life for her kid the whole time, I guess. And it was kind of second guessing her like ruthlessness at work, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, which like, okay. Like I buy that, I guess is an arc for a person. Not that people have arcs, they live and they die, whatever. <laughs> but like, but, 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 you know, like, I just think that like in the, in the narrative, you know, constraints of the show, like she, like other characters, mostly men could, could just have been, that you know and like 
that was the fullness of her humanity or whatever. Like, I just, I just think that like, kind of like almost retconning the character to have it be like, Oh, the whole time this was, it's just a little bit like, eh. especially when we have Maeve who, you know, has a, a dynamic in terms of, she's like, tough and murderous but also cares for her child you know her child and like it just feels a bit like samey and and a little bit i mean i hate to say it like uh, lazy i mean a woman wrote this episode a woman directed this episode like it's not that it's a male you know stop per- bad perspective necessarily it's just like it feels like a tired trope that um i think this show given all the possibilities it has could could invert or just not touch at all well it's interesting because so much of westworld if you think about it is about parents and children right like uh mm-hmm. it's not just Maven and her daughter but you've got like you know william and his daughter last season uh, but then you've got all the like people who created robots and robots who created other robots you know like dolores has this like twisted maternal relationship with bernard who she created and arnold is dolores's father but ford is also dolores's father you know like you've got father like i think you know up till now, I would not say it's super gendered. I would say like parents and their children is a preoccupation. And, and, you know, it, you brought up Damon Lindelof earlier. If you're, if you're going to, you know, journey down the question of wondering about God and gods and their impact and creators and their impact on us, that gets messy, messily like bound up in like parental issues, daddy issues for Damon Lindelof, um, et cetera. Um, so I would say up until this episode, I wouldn't have thought of that as like a particularly like lazier gendered thing. I would think of it as like a, a rich thematic essence of Westworld. And then they did it to this character. And I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't work for me. Like that you can't, there, there wasn't any track laid for this and it does. And it just feels like a last second. Uh, reversal on a character uh, who we spent a lot of time with, even if like half of last season we were actually spending time with Dolores, you know what I mean? And so like, I, yeah, it, it, it bothers me as, as the, this is how we're going to give this character dimension, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, Okay, so yeah, so everything that happens is that, uh, you know, this, this host posing as Charlotte, uh, finds out basically that there is a mole in the company. The mole is like, uh, that there's a shadow buyer that, that basically Ciroc, played by Vincent Cassell, working for Insight, has shadow bought 38% of the company, has like about to have like controlling interests of the company, basically. Um, that means she can't take the company private the way that she wants to. Um, meanwhile, she's navigating having a kid and, and what that means. Meanwhile, she's having like this identity crisis because she's having to pretend to be Charlotte. Um, and so she's sort of cutting her own skin open, which puts her into a crisis where she needs to call Dolores to help like regulate her. Um, and then in the end sort of accesses her predatory nature and, uh, kills a guy who's threatening her kid and then finds out that she herself is the mole uh, <laughs> feeding, yeah. feeding information to Ciroc. Uh, so, uh, which I think we already, we already kind of knew that Charlotte was up to some uh, shady corporate uh, espionage. But I think now the, the hosts know that Charlotte is up to that. Yeah. It's kind uh, of a little bit like Edward Norton figuring out that he's Tyler Durden at the end of Fight Club. Right. You know, right. Um, but it's interesting the scene where, um, 
you know, pseudo Charlotte freaks out and, and, you know, forces Dolores to kind of come meet her to calm her down. And Dolores, you know, says, you know, cease emotional function or whatever, whatever she says to, to the Charlotte bot to like, it's interesting. There's a parallel there between, we talked about this with Bernard and Stubbs where Bernard and Dolores are these fully aware, conscious, you know, sentient, you know, entities now, and who want to liberate, or, I mean, I don't know what Bernard's motivation really is, but Dolores certainly wants to liberate her kind, create more of her kind, but also liberate them in the process. Um, and yet are still willing to work within the kind of human prescripted bounds of the technology, you know? Like, they're still they're still okay kind of having that authority over their brethren, you know? Like, which I think is an interesting dynamic. Yeah, and, like, Dolores made no secret of that last season like even you know like she reprogrammed teddy and it was this like sort of big traumatic thing for teddy like to her own end last season and stuff like that so that is like classic dolores it's like it's it's that bernard is doing it feels really weird and i think mave's approach has been like trying to wake her companions up so like last season with like Hector and armistice and the various people that she sort of rallied to her cause she was like you know, this is your choice, whatever you want to do, but will you help me sort of thing? It wasn't like, I command you to help me. Um, and that's a big difference between um, these godlike robots, right? Um, so I think that's worth noting. Um, but once again, that comes back to that whole paternal thing, because like in that scene between Dolores and let's say, let's call her Charlotte, um, Dolores is being controlling, yes, and also kind of parental right Mm -hmm. and also kind of romantic it's it's a it's a weird because we don't know who she's talking to um but that's how she's treating that robot is like someone someone she knows very well is what she says and someone and i can't i think i can't tell if maybe they do it did it just to keep the mystery alive but this idea of like is dolores being tenderly romantic towards this person or is Dolores being tenderly like maternal towards this person? What is happening here? And I think Evan Rachel Wood actually skates that line pretty admirably in that scene. Um, presumably in order to keep the mystery alive of who she's talking to. Once again, I, that, that frustrates me fundamentally and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, all right. Um, anything else I want to mention with the Charlotte stuff before we cover some of the Caleb stuff. Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, like, like I said, we're going to talk about twists in a bit, but, um, you know, Tessa Thompson is an incredibly talented, uh, performer. And so like, and, and this is such like a dazzlingly beautiful show that in most circumstances, watching Tessa Thompson do her thing at the center of this like gorgeous, uh, you know, uh, prestige sci-fi show on HBO, like should thrill me. And so like, I'm frustrated with my own frustration, if that makes sense. Um, and then we get the Dolores and Caleb stuff and this stuff is, feels very noir to me. Yeah. Um, but you know, basically, you know, we get the immediate aftermath of like Dolores stumbling out of that tunnel in uh, episode one, Caleb saves Dolores and then Dolores in turn saves Caleb and sort of wakes him up to the nature of his reality and uh, drafts him to her cause. 
Yeah, would- and I think it's funny in the um, in the scene where they're in the ambulance mm-hmm. and the two EMTs are like, what is going on with her vitals? Like, this all is reading wrong, you know, um, is I kind of realized that like, oh, wait, we've been spending two seasons with these robots, but like the people out in the real world, like they would have no, they would, no one would ever assume that any of the Westworld things, probably something that like most people can't even afford to ever see up close. Right. Was ever in the world, you know? Yeah. So like it is, it is going to be a complete shock when these people find out who walks among them. Right. And as far as I can tell, Caleb does not know by the end of this episode that no. she is a robot. Despite the fact, like it's, it's really interesting. I rewatched it a couple times, like in that after the attack on the ambulance, she drags a dude, uh, and like, presumably Caleb could have seen that, but I guess he doesn't. Um, but at any rate, he, d- he, he thinks she's human. Um, and I'm, I'm endlessly curious to see how he will react when he finds out she isn't. Um, but yeah, and this idea that like <laughs> the EMTs don't know how to deal with her because their machines can't tell them. And Caleb, who has done like, you know, uh, wartime, you know, battlefront triage or whatever is like oxygen and blood, bro, get it in her. Like, I know what to do. And he's right because we saw that back in season one of Westworld. Um, I don't, you know, if you remember this, but like James Marsden had been like practically drained of blood and then they had to like put blood in him. So like presumably for some reason, an infusion of blood actually helps the robots of Westworld run better. I don't know why. I don't understand the robotics behind that, but that seems like to putting be the gas case. in a car. Sure, 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 sure. Why not? Um, what do you make of this whole the diner interaction between Oof. Dolores and Caleb? I gotta okay. say, I didn't like this. I, okay. I don't. I I think it it it. It's like we don't know this guy. Like this is not significant to us. You know, it's like too soon for that reveal. Maybe. Um, I, it it felt a little bit cloying in a way, like the strawberry milkshake and everything. I don't know. It just, it felt, I mean, this sounds like a dumb criticism, but it didn't feel cool enough for Westworld somehow. It felt too pedestrian or something. But, um, but you know, I understand that they had to explain what this technology actually is and what it, what its implications are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there was maybe a less kind of clunkily expositional way to do that. I mean, this episode is a lot of like, Dolores flat out just explaining things to Caleb slash us because Caleb is us um, what's going on. And I appreciate the clarity on that, but I, I think that there maybe is a more elegant way to sort of suss that out rather than just people kind of stating their motivations much in the same way that Sirach is like, remember Charlotte, you said you would get this thing for me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. So I don't know. Um, what did you think? Did you, what was your impression of it? Well, I know. I'm like, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and I think I, what I do think is interesting is this idea, this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy idea of the system where it's like, we've determined you're likely to commit suicide. So we're not going to allow you to like get married or have an impactful career because you're just going to kill yourself. But in doing, but in, but in putting Caleb on that path where he's isolated and um, professionally frustrated, um, they're drive, they're just actually driving him to suicide. You know what I mean? So it's just this like feedback loop sort of thing, um, which, you know, I don't, I don't uh, presume to 
be an expert on suicidal ideation or anything like that. But I think that's an interesting concept of this whole like, well, you're not, we've already determined you're never going to amount to something or we've already determined that you're going to do this thing. So we're going to put you in the exact conditions that would push you to do that thing, you know? So it's interesting. Um, but as for the dynasty itself, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess if we had more time, if we had 10 episodes, it's so funny. Cause like, I feel like, kind of nothing keeps happening in these episodes. Um, and yet I still want more time. Like I still want more time with Jacob or with Caleb. So we get like, so we get some flashes and allusions to this inciting incident for him, this like milkshake incident for him. So that when we find out what it actually is, it means more, uh, which is, I think is sort of what you were saying. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so, uh, you know, the episode ends and, uh, you know, Caleb is on team Dolores, whatever that means. Um, and Charlotte has some, has, has a clock ticking on her in terms of like a hostile takeover of the company. Uh, so that's, that's where we find ourselves and we still don't know who's Charlotte and, uh, who is any of these other robots. And presumably, uh, Bernard is heading towards Dolores. Um, so let's talk about twists. Okay. So, so this show is created by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Jonathan Nolan, uh, you know, brother of Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, has made his career creating sort of twisty narratives. I can't think of a single thing that he's done that is like incredibly straightforward. Uh, he did Memento. He did, um, like he wrote the screenplay for Memento. He wrote the screenplay for the prestige, uh, you know, along with, uh, Christopher, I believe, and, and, uh, interstellar. And so this idea, like, you know, the, the interstellar twist that like it was Matthew McConaughey all along manipulating the, uh, the like shafts of dust in his daughter's bedroom, you know, like that's, that's the sort of stuff that Jonathan Nolan like lives for. Um, it seems. So when do these Nolan-esque twists work well for us or when do any twists work well for us? And I will just say that like, I recently rewatched all of season one of Westworld to prep for this. I think season one of Westworld is great. I still think it's great. I know at the time, the big twist reveal that we were actually watching two different timelines all along was frustrating to some, but it was not, to me, and the argument I heard at the time was that people who were frustrated by it, like some very smart TV critics were saying like, it's frustrating to me that I was watching something for so long and I didn't know what I was watching. And so how can I properly like assess the performance of it or the emotional impact of it? But the reason why season one works for me is because the main thing that you're watching that's, you know, little tricksy is Dolores, but Dolores in that season is basically on the same journey several decades apart. So even if one of those journeys is a retread of the other, like you're kind of tracing her in the same arc. So there isn't any real mm, emotional inauthenticity to season one because of that. But season two frustrated me because in their endeavor to really trick us, the fact that they hid Dolores inside Charlotte's body meant we could not enjoy everything that Dolores is going through in that part of the season and everything Tessa Thompson as a performer was doing. 
And I feel that even more so in this episode where once again, Tessa Thompson's doing something that I can't access. So like what, what works for you and what doesn't Richard when it comes to like maybe the Nolans in general or, or twists in Westworld? Well, I think in general, you know, twists are the kind of thing that when, when to work, the, you you have to be able to look back at what you just watched and be like, oh, like that, you know, and have it all sort of, you know, the coffee cup falling to the ground at the end of Usual Suspects right. kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah. Whereas a bad twist is one that, like I said earlier, is like feels very arbitrary. And it's just like, we told you this thing, but actually it's this. It's like, that's not a twist. That's a lie. You know, that's, that's, that's like a narrative. Right. That's like, you know, and I think there is a distinct difference between those two things. And uh even the best of showrunners don't always or or you know screenwriters or whoever like don't always see that difference um and i think that like the thing about it is i i don't think that it's that people liked people who the people who liked westworld i don't think liked it because it had twists they liked the particular twist you know um and and so i think that like once that has been ironed out I don't think that we need to just try to like do it again in, and then they're not, I don't think they're doing that in such a grand scale this season. I think it's a lot more linear. I mean, as we saw in this episode where like murky things got explained 20 minutes later, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's in, in, in general though, like in terms of, I, I, I feel like I, I watched a movie that was on, that's on Amazon uh, prime uh, that was at South by Southwest last year. Maybe you saw it called um, I see you. Um, it's with yeah, Hel- yeah. Helen Hunt is in it and, um, mm-hmm. John Tenney, um, and a couple of younger actors and it starts off and you think it's one thing and then it's not. And then there is a big twist at the end. And if you look back, it's, a, there, there are some plot holes for sure, but like it kind of, it all works elegantly in, you know, it, it sort of, it's the thing that ties the piece together, um, rather than completely yanks it in some d- direction. It never seemed to, you know, um, and I think there is a, a delicate difference there and um you know in my own sort of like fiction writing or playwriting like um have i written things that i feel like have twists maybe but like they're very mild and i think that part of that is is it's a really hard to do and so um you know i, I don't envy anyone the task um what you know including nolan and joy who you know had a lot to kind of deliver on after the first two seasons of the show but but i think the you know, again these kind of arbitrary plot yanks that are really just kind of dishonesty that then they're like, no, never mind. Just kidding. It was this all along that the does don't feel very, um, I don't know, savory to me, I guess. Yeah. There's also, we should say like a big difference between doing a twist over the length, the course of a film. Yeah. And then over like a season of television, right? Like as we discussed last week, the, the Maeve, um, simulation within a simulation thing didn't really bother me because it's resolved by the end of the hour and Maeve is like it was like sort of the point of the episode was like Maeve figuring it out and like fighting through it and stuff like that so we're like on that journey with her trying with her to figure out what's real and what's not and so that you know for whatever critiques I might have about last week's episode like that is not really a critique I have of that episode but this where we finish the out, like maybe if we finish the hour with the reveal of who is inside Charlotte. And then, so then we could in that moment just be like, Oh, for the episode, you know, that mm-hmm. might be helpful. 
But, you know, it's that sustained, like, you know, so you watch the episode and then, and then, you know, especially if you're not watching, you know, media screeners, like we often have access to, you're sitting with a week of like, what did I just watch sort of thing, you know, uh, it, you know, if not more. And so, um, you know, what is successful in a Jonathan Nolan movie, um, is not as easily transplanted to a Jonathan Nolan season of television. Right. Um, the other thing is like, yeah, I was, I was trying to like, you know, I, I sent this prompt to you a couple hours ago. I was like, let's talk about twists and like the best twists ever or something like that. And like, so I was like, okay, what twists have you really enjoyed? So like the biggest, the, you know, the most, I think, famous twist in a film ever. Uh, <laughs> well, you mentioned the usual suspects, but I think, I think this one is a little bit above it. Maybe. Never mind. We don't have to compare them. Uh, the, the sixth sense, right? Okay. So what makes the sixth sense a good twist for me? And, uh, spoilers for the sixth sense, I guess, coming up if you've never seen it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the film, it's revealed that Bruce Willis is actually dead all along. And the reason that doesn't feel like a lie to me is because the, the journey we're watching him on all, all that through that movie is one of like, isolation, separation. He feels out of step with his own world. He's alienated. He's, he's lost his wife. Um, like all this sort of stuff. And that, that reality doesn't really change once he's dead. It's true. It's true. Like you think you're just watching a man in a marriage that's falling apart. And what you're actually watching is a man who's already died. And, but that loss is the same for both. And so then emotionally, just, you know, watching the movie, knowing the ending and watching the movie, not knowing the ending, emotionally feels the same. I would say it's similar. Like the same thing is kind of true of fight club. Cause you're watching this character played by Edward Norton have a mental breakdown and whether or not, you know, that mental breakdown comes with a projected alter ego in the shape of Brad Pitt or not, you know, you're watching a guy have a mental breakdown. And so that emotional journey is the same for you, whether, you know, whether you know the ending or not. So that feels like a, an important distinction to me. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. I think also, you know, something like The Sixth Sense, if you go back and watch it, is the, the, the movie never says he's not dead. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 right. it, it's not declaring something to be true and then two hours later being like, no, you know, never mind. Um, it's there the whole time. Um, and I think that, like, you know, I don't think that, I, don't, I should clarify, I don't think that Westworld has yet done the sort of you know, the lie. I, I think that, no. you know, I think that like they've, they've been like, you know, they're being withholding about who's in Charlotte's body. But, you know, last episode, they, you know, they, they kind of confused us for a bit with the Maeve stuff. And then gradually, you know, it became clear. Like they, they, like everything has had a sort of shape to it. It had, um, but, but I just worry the way that it's, it's going is that like all these little kind of mini things, eventually they're going to run out of steam and just start doing kind of bad tricks. Um, I mean, I hope that's, that's not, that, that, that's not the case. I hope that it continues to get more and more, um, you know, sat, com- complex in, in an organic way, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard. I I, I don't think that, um, you know, I I think that in in setting up a kind of big bad for this season, or or I mean, I guess we're assuming that um, Rehoboth, <laughs> sorry, I'm never gonna get it, <laughs> is 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 like bad. Like, I, I think that what that does is it makes the thrust of the season that much more linear, right? And, um, and well, I mean, but because of that, I don't know that the show needs 
all these little little episode by episode digressions that then bring you back to center you know what i mean like if like i feel like there's a way that this show could be very satisfying and just be kind of a straightforward thing rather than sort of overcomplicating it because that's what last season did um I think you should just start calling Roboam like whatever you want, starting with an R. Um, and my first <laughs> suggestion is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, okay. but like, uh, yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting to me. Um, I think the idea of like Roboam and it's like a constriction of our liberties, which is something that we, uh, might identify with even more so now that we're all like sort of locked up in our houses because this, uh, virus is having its, its way with us right now. Um, but, uh, Vincent Cassell as a villainous figure that we assume because we've seen Vincent Cassell literally in anything else. Um, and, uh, but I think the wild card is Dolores. I think we're meant to be wondering, um, whether or not Dolores is someone we're, we want to be rooting for this season or not. Um, because I found myself questioning that in the past and like, do Bernard and Maeve have the right idea about what she wants to do is what she wants to do. The right thing to do. Like so far we've only seen her kill like, uh, you know, one real bad dude, like, you know, people who have attacked her, which is what was her promise at the beginning of the season. Right. So like, okay, so she's a murderous bot, you know, but like, did we talk about this on this podcast? But like Dexter, you know, she's only killing bad guys. So it's fine. Um, uh, you can root for her. So that I think is the moral ambiguity of like, is Dolores right in whatever it is she's doing here? Um, what is right, uh, in, in this world? And, and like, is, is Bernard on the right path? Is Maeve on the right path? Like, that's, that's the, that's the question. And that's, that's the mystery that I'm more invested in rather than like, who is, who is inside Charlotte Hale's head right now, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that where, where there could be a really cool sort of all encompassing, if you want to call it a twist or sort of reveal is mm. what Dolores actually plans to do. Yes. Once she gets access to this or, you know, is she just going to outright destroy it? Is there some other, you know, kind of shadowy intention we're not aware of? Is there a big, another reason why Bernard has been set loose in the world, you know, despite him being an obvious f- foil to her? Um, and I have no doubt that the show can deliver that. It's just like, I feel like it's just trying to start the engine in these first few episodes and it's, it's, it's starting a little bit, like it's connecting here and there, but like I'm, it's, it's feeling a little bit laggy, you know, and, and this episode, I think while offering some interesting things, um, you know, kind of clunked things up a bit elsewhere. And the last question I have, and, and I don't know if it'll, um, it'll ever be, I'll ever get a straightforward answer about it is like, I'm not convinced the way the episodes are separated out uh, is how they were originally meant to be separated out this season. You know, because, like, sometimes, you know, writers will write out, you know, it's called breaking a season, right? Like, figuring out what bits of plot you want to go in which episodes of a season. And sometimes those things get moved around, like, especially on a show like Westworld or, like, Game of Thrones, where you've got, like, oh, I don't know, like, an Arya plot line that's off and a different continent for a season or two. And so that means you can kind of put those Aria scenes wherever you want to, to like 
flesh out or contract an episode or to balance tone. So there's some flexibility there. And there's some flexibility a bit here too, because like other than the Dolores and Maeve plot, uh, Dolores and Charlotte plot, like overlapping in the middle of this episode, like a lot of these main characters are on sort of their own paths. And so you can mix and match. And so the reason I say that is there's a moment in the middle of this episode or no, like two thirds of the way through this episode when like Dolores introduces herself to Caleb and he goes, nice to meet you, Dolores. And I'm like, how is that not the last line of an episode? Like, how is that not mm-hmm. cut to black? Um, and then instead, the very next scene is the two of them walking like along the waterfront. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that, that I, to me, that I feel like that was clearly meant to be the end of an episode at some point in the writing process. And so I almost wonder, was there ever a version of the Charlotte episode where we do find out who's inside Charlotte, you know, in within that same episode? Um, yeah. I think there I could have been a fascinating, almost bottle episode. Yeah. You know, where it's just her, the whole episode. And then at the end of this, like expand, you know, really rich kind of dense hour of television, we find out, you know, um, and I think that we saw episodes like that last season, you know, um, the, the one, the name, I can't remember the name, the title of the episode, but where we're just spending all the time with the, uh, the Native American guy. Oh, Kiks- Kiksuya. Yeah. yeah. And then, and in that, yeah. that episode, you feel like you've been through this like long, yeah. t- intense journey. It's such a great episode of television. And I feel like they're, you know, obviously they're, the show is capable of that. And I think that like, again, they're just trying to get things started and they have a lot of exposition. They, because it's such a gear shift, like it's such a direction shift. I mean, it's, it's like now the show is about this whole other thing and they have to kind of introduce a lot quickly. And I think it's really, um, it's, it's fucking with their pace a bit, you know? Um, and I hope that that can be ironed out, um, as the season goes on. Excellent. Um, well, is there anything else we want to say about this episode before we, we close out? Um, oh, well, RIP his little helper robot. Oh, Chappie. (laughs) Chappie is no longer (laughs) consciousness or alive, but he will forever be Chappie. (laughs) RIP Chappie. Um, all right. Well, you know, as much as we've been tough on this episode, I am excited to talk about uh, next week's episode uh, with you, Richard. Until we get to do that, where can folks find you? I mean, at my house. <laughs> 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 Tweeting incessantly from Ryla's writing. Actually, I've been been getting, filing a lot of reviews on yeah. VF.com, uh, Crip Camp, the new... Uh, there's the new uh, making, what is it called? I don't know, making the cut with Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn on Amazon. That's kind of fun. Project Runway, but kind of glammed up. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Where are you going to be until we record next? Oh, in my home. Yeah, um, that's where everyone is. Uh, I, it looks like we're going to be watching Sunset Boulevard for a Little Gold Men episode next week. So that's a fun thing that we're going to do yeah. uh, together. So if you have never seen the classic film Sunset Boulevard, that's something we're doing for our award season podcast, Little Gold Men, because we all live inside now. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This and yeah, uh, both of us at VanityFair.com. And we will see you for the continuing adventures of Dolores and whoever the hell is inside Charlotte Hale uh, next week on yeah. Westworld. And I just want to say, if any of you listening are you know, healthcare workers at hospitals, delivery yeah. people, whatever, thank you, thank you, thank you so thank much. You. I don't mean to imply when I say we're all home that everyone's home. I understand that many people are it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you for, for doing that. Uh, and uh, we'll hopefully keep 
I don't know, entertaining you with our TV bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Bye. Bye. violent delights and violent ends.